the very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding here. Welcome to Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry. Before I introduce today's guest, I do want to mention that I do have a Patreon page at www.patreon.com forward slash M-U-H-H. If, you feel, if you're enjoying the content I'm putting out, um, please do feel free to throw us a little something to support the podcast. But I'm, I'm extremely excited today because we have today's guest, Dr. Saul Newman. We've, had, we've read numerous articles of his on the podcast, and I'm just... Uh, I'm I'm tremendously excited. I'm a little bit nervous, Saul, and I've done oh. about a <laughs> I've done about 130 of these, so I don't. It's not often that I get nervous, but this one this is big for me. So, thanks so well, much for joining me. Hope I don't disappoint you. Not at all. Not I don't I don't think that'll happen. Um, I was already a big fan of yours, um, but I picked up. So I had finished post anarchism the other day, and then I picked up the Bakunin and, and Lacan book. And your section on Lacan, I was just sit- I was kind of sitting there with my roommate, kind of giggling out loud. He's like, "Yeah, what's what's going on?" I was just, I'm reading passages. I got it all. I got it all from Zizek, actually. So I probably got sort of a rather a jaded um, interpretation of Lacan. So I subsequently actually went back and read some some Lacan after writing it. You know, found it was actually quite different from. Uh, oh, really? Interesting. Okay. Anyway, that that was my PhD thesis. That was a long time ago. Um. But before we get into the meat of today's discussion, I actually wanted to read a a quote, a bit of dialogue from uh, George R. R. Martin's A Clash of Kings uh, from the uh, A Song of Ice and Fire series that I thought just fit, I think, the overall kind of theme of this episode really well. Power is a curious thing, my lord. Perchance you have considered the riddle I posed that day in the end. It has crossed my, time, my mind a time or two, Tyrion admitted. The king, the priest, the rich man, who lives and who dies, who will the swordsman obey? It's a riddle without an answer, or rather too many answers. All depends on the man with the sword. And yet he is no one, Varys said. He has neither crown, nor gold, nor favor of the gods, only a piece of pointed steel. That piece of steel is the power of life and death. Just so, yet if it is the swordsmen who is to who rule us in truth, why do we pretend our kings hold the power? Why should a strong man with the sword ever obey a child king like Joffrey or a wine-sodden oaf like his father? Because these child kings and druf- drunken oafs can call other strong men with swords. Then these other swordsmen have the true power, or do they? Vera smiled. Some say knowledge is power. Some tell us that all power comes from the gods. Others say it derives from law. Yet that day on the steps of Baylor Sept, our godly high Septon and the lawful queen regent and your ever so knowledgeable servant were as powerless as any cobbler or cooper in the crowd. Who truly killed Eddard Stark, do you think? Joffrey, who gave the command? Sir Illan Payne, who swung the sword? Or another? Tyrion cocked his head sideways. Did you mean to answer your damned riddle or only to make my headache worse? Varys smiled. Here then, power resides where men believe it resides, no more and no less. Mm, that's, that's wonderful. 
It uh, actually reminds me of uh, Etienne de Laboisie's famous thesis on voluntary servitude, actually, where he argues that inner white power is an illusion. It's something which is constituted by our voluntary obedience. In other words, you know, power is created by our, our kind of belief in this kind of illusory idea that someone actually has the power over us. But when you really break it down, that, that power entirely rests upon our own sort of sub- uh, voluntary subjection or voluntary servitude to, to something which doesn't even exist. Um, so, yes, I, I think actually that, that, that quote is quite reflective of the, you know, of the powerlessness of power. Um, and, of course, you know, Stirner would argue that, you know, I think there's a quote in, in the ego and itself where he says, you know, that the powerful are only powerful because we are on our knees. Let us rise. <laughs> That's- it's a great quote. How did you uh, first encounter Stern? I'm kind of curious, I'm, and I'll give you a little bit of context. So now, I don't know, you know how familiar you are with sort of online culture and whatnot, but amongst the, the left, amongst the kind of theory or philosophy crowd, Sterner is, a, is kind of a, a meme. So <laughs> that's actually <laughs> how I first, first uncovered him, just through on the, seeing random memes of Sterner, and then it kind of like piqued my interest, and I sort of dug in. And a fan club on Facebook, which I've just joined recently. Actually, oh, nice. <laughs> produced a series of rather amusing memes. Um, it's called Egoist Anarchism, actually. Yes, exactly. I mean, his, 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 I mean, Stern is a figure who's really not taken all that seriously within, you know, within sort of most philosophical circles, actually. You know, if you say you're into Sterner, people kind of regard you as a bit of an oddball um, and still absorb for you. I mean, for a long time, there's been very much on the margins of philosophy, a very much a neglected figure. There's very little literature, very little scholarship, at least in the English language on, on, on Stirner. So he's really not, uh, he's really regarded as kind of like a black sheep, really. Um, but in a way, that kind of his, his kind of marginality is what makes him interesting. Very true. Um, I mean, he's someone who really takes a wrecking ball to the, the entire history of Western philosophy and says, it's all bullshit. <laughs> um, it's all based on a series of, you know, uh, quasi-religious abstractions. And, and really, his, his, his kind of philosoph- philosophical project is to really demolish, you know, the sort of the history of Western philosophy um, uh, and, and, you know, and, and, and rebuild it from the ground up, actually, which, which is, um, I mean, his project is, is, is extreme. It's one of the most sort of radical thinkers I've ever encountered, which is kind of what, um, what makes him appealing to, to me. Um, but, uh, I mean, that little book, the only book he ever really wrote, well, the only book he's uh, known for is, is really, it's, it's, it's a, a nuclear bomb held in the hands of uh, the most sort of unassuming, <laughs> meek, an obscure character who, you know, <laughs> his better years teaching at a girls' school, died in complete poverty and uh, really a kind of a non-entity, actually. Although, having said that, I mean, he was one of the key figures of the, of the young Hegelian uh, circle, um, you know, which is a very sort of influential group of philosophers and journalists, um, including you know, Bruno Bauer and Karl Marx himself, of course, was very much influenced by these uh, uh, by these these uh, these thinkers and intellectuals, and um, so so Stoner actually think had a in some ways a kind of a quite a big impact on um, on sort of subsequent thinking, including of course on Marx himself. I mean, the German ideology right. is, is a kind of a, you know two thirds of this basically a repudiation of um, of, uh, of of Stoner, um, you know, whom they call Saint Max, uh, of course. But you know, there is an argument that you know in a way Stoner was actually quite instrumental in. Um, uh, in this notion of the kind of the epistemological break in Marx's thought between this kind of early, you know, humanism and this kind of later, more, uh, as it were, sort of, sort of scientific approach to uh, to historical materialism and so on. So, um, 
you know, uh, so sorry, I mean, Sterner had this kind of subterranean influence, I think, um, in, in, you know, sort of in subsequent uh, sort of philosophy and theory, I would say. How did you even first, though, even encounter his work? Because I'm sure, well, I was, I'm sure, well, assuming this is probably early, early internet time, so I, you know, I don't know how. Oh, very much so, yes. Um, gosh, this, was, this takes me, I mean, it was, I was writing my PhD thesis, so we're going back to, was it sort of 1994 to 98? And um, so the PhD thesis, which was, you know, the from Bakunin to Lacan book, um, was uh, an attempt to kind of rethink anarchism through post-structuralist thought. Um, and I felt that I'd kind of reached a certain sort of impasse. I was trying to kind of put these two sets of ideas together. So, right. you know, 19th century Russian anarchism, Bakunin, Kropotkin, um, on the one hand, Proudhon to some extent, of course, um, with, you know, 20th century uh, post-structuralist thinkers like, you know, Foucault, uh, Derrida, you know, Lacan, Deleuze and Guattari. So I was kind of looking for that missing link, you know. So is there a thinker which kind of brings these two traditions together? And... Actually, I just almost by accident stumbled upon Max Stirner's book in, in a public library. The ego is um, the old, uh, a, a much older sort of. Um, it was still a, a Stephen Bynes in translation, but you know, I just don't, don't remember the old sort of like pirated cover with this kind of cartoon picture of Stirner on the before the Cambridge version came out. Um, but I picked it up, and I was in a public library, so I just, I was just, I was just, just fascinated. I just started reading it. I was, you know, this is my guy. I mean, I found that I found missing links. <laughs> That's perfect. Philosophical gold dust here, you know? Right. Um, so I, I kind of read the book in, you know, space about two days and so on, and it was really <laughs> a kind of sort of eureka moment. And, and so I, I came to the conclusion, actually, that in a way, Sterner was this kind of sort of early, early postmodernist, early post-structuralist. So he's engaging in this sort of um, critique of, of, you know, Hegelian idealism, of, of, of humanism, uh, of the liberal state, um, of, uh, of, of essentialist concepts and so on, which he regards as being sort of you know, philosophical and a kind of a hangover from, uh, from religion and from Christianity. Um, and I, I could just immediately see the connection with kind of, you know, with this sort of critique of, of meta-narratives, which you would find in, in post-structuralist figures. So, um, so in a way, Sterner became this kind of, you know, sort of, sort of, sort of uh, pivotal point in, in, in the argument of the or the, the, the kind of the theoretical trajectory of, um, of, the, uh, of, the, of the thesis, the PhD thesis. Um, and uh, I suppose you could say that since that time, I've been kind of fascinated by, by Stoner ever since, you know? Absolutely. So I said that was a moment, <laughs> moment of discovery. Yeah. That's amazing. Um, how would you say, I think maybe one of the most important things we should point out or discuss about Stoner is, and you do this quite well, is, is kind of making the distinguish in line between liberal individualism and what mm. Stirner has in mind when he's referring to egoism. Yes, I mean, there's a lot of confusion around this, actually. I mean, I mean Stirner's um, uh, notion of the, the ego is, 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 is often conflated and confused with, you know, either kind of a liberal individual or some kind of, you know, libertarian, you know, Ayn Randian idea of the, you know, sort of selfish individualism or possessive individualism, for instance. And, and it's just, it's just, a, it's just a, Total confusion, actually. Um, I mean, I, I think one only simply has to read uh, Stirner to see that the, the notion of the, the ego, the Einziger, or perhaps better translated as the, the owner, 
um, is, a, is, is a much more radical notion and it simply cannot be reduced in any sense to, uh, to the liberal individual. Why? Because it's a figure which Stirner described as a kind of a creative nothingness. In other words, it is without essential property. So if you compare this to you know, the, the, the kind of the model of liberal individualism, you know, which is about, you know, I guess, uh, you know, sort of being a kind of a rational chooser, being a utility maximizer, being self-interested, um, being endowed with certain rights, uh, being a, a, someone who has the capacity to own property and so on, uh, also being a, a kind of a citizen of the state, uh, which kind of ties in to some extent with, um, uh, with, with uh, you know, with, with kind of the, the figure of the liberal individual. I mean, she's done it kind of completely dislodges and demolishes all of his concepts. I mean, firstly, he's completely against the idea that property and property rights can be in any sense secured and protected. Uh, so the egoist is someone who, uh, in a way, kind of absorbs the entire world um, into his or her own concept of property. So the entire world becomes the property of the egoist. Now, what that means, in a way, is that the whole notion of property as a kind of a institution which can be protected through law as in you know my notion of, or as in the notion of private property becomes completely unstable um uh the and, and of course the whole idea of being a kind of a creative nothingness suggests that the the egoist is um a figure which is always in flux in other words it's not a fixed identity as such it, it can't be sort of uh, confined within a kind of a Sort of set of concepts or ideas or essential properties. It's something which is always changing. It's, it's it's much more, I think, to do with, for instance, Deleuze's notion of, of becoming. It's a movement. It's a flux. Um, it's something which is always being kind of you know created and recreated and reconstituted. It, it's a kind of an anarchic figure of the subject. I mean, I think probably the the, the thinker that the, the contemporary thinker who perhaps comes closest to Stoner in this regard is, is George Agamben and his notion of singularities or whatever singularity. You're perhaps familiar with, um, you know, with Agamben's uh, uh, philosophy. But, but once again, the, the singularity is a figure who simply cannot be defined in any sort of stable uh, way or through any sort of stable identity. Um, so, I mean, to me, on my reading anyway, and, and of course this is contested, um, but I mean, I would say that Stoner's figure is, is, is really quite antithetical to the notion of the liberal individual. In the book you discuss, in the Bakunin to Lacan book, you discuss war as, as Stirner's model of relations, which I thought was, was an interesting take. Yeah. How much was that, was that influenced by kind of Deleuze and, and like the war machine concept or am yeah, I, so I taking that at face value? Yes, I mean, I think, see, Stirner's tricky because in some, on one reading, it sounds a little bit like, almost a bit like, like Hobbes actually, the state of nature, you know, the war of every man against every man where he talks about, um, you know, the, the power politics. In fact, he even mentions the war of all against all. Um, um, so there is, I think, some notion Stern is thinking of a kind of a, a sort of a, almost a sort of an antagonism or a potential antagonism between egos simply because, you know, egoists are in a way affirming their own power. On the other hand, I don't think this actually in any sense rules out or, or Militates against, you know, the, the you know ideas of love, you know, unity, solidarity, even collective action, for instance. Um, but I think Stirner would say that in a way everything is based upon this this kind of 
very paradoxical figure of the egoist who, who may well find him or herself in a relationship of, of a certain kind of hostility or potential hostility with other egos. But once again, perhaps not. I mean, other kinds of relations uh, are, are possible and it really is up to the sort of egoist to kind of constitute um, those relations with others. I mean, you have to understand that what, what Stoner is against is any kind of, um, as it were, sort of universal moral obligation which society um, or religion or, uh, you know, sort of morality itself kind of imposes upon the individual. It's not that he's against morality or ethics as such, but he, he believes that it's up to the egoist in a way to kind of affirm his or her own um, sort of, you know, ethics or, uh, or determine his or own sort of you know, ethical uh, or moral disposition simply because he believes that all of these kinds of grand narratives um, are, are, are ideological abstractions. Uh, I mean, they don't really exist. Um, and to to be made concrete, to be made real, they have to be brought down to the level of, uh, of, these, of the egoist, uh, which, which for him is the only reality. I mean, it, it is really the only, the only thing that's real in this world. So people like you and me, individuals, define our own our own reality, our own worlds. Uh, it's up to us to do it. It's not up to, to God or to the church or to, uh, you know, more, uh, other forms of moral authority to kind of define morality for us. It's up to us. And, I mean, who else can it be up to, really? And that, that goes to the sort of war on essentialism that you, you touched on a bit. Um, I'm curious, I can, and I can't remember if I had this idea first or if I got it just from, gleaned it just from reading you or what the order was there, but I mm-hmm. saw, I don't know if, is it, how would you compare Stirner and Derrida in terms of their overall project? It feels like there's e- they're either parallel or they're getting at sort of a lot of the same, same things. Yes, that's, it's complicated. I mean, um, so Inspectors Marks, of course, uh, Derrida, uh, talks about Stirner. He talks about Stirner as being um, the kind of the uh, you know, the um, sort of twin brother of Marx. So both figures are sort of engaged on this in this hunt for spectres, ghosts, the ghosts of philosophical idealism, for instance. I mean, uh, Derrida is quite interesting because he's one of the you know the few kind of major continental philosophers or you know sort of post-structuralists to to actually in a way take Stirner seriously. Um, you know, he's a I mean, Deleuze also talks a little bit about Stirner in relation to, to Nietzsche, of course. But, um, but yes, I mean, I mean, Derrida actually regards Stirner as actually having potentially quite a, a big influence on, on the trajectory of Marx's thought and in a way kind of uses Stirner to sort of, in a way, deconstruct Marx himself, actually. Um, I, I, suppose, I suppose you could say that, you know, both Stirner and Derrida are engaged in a certain kind of project of deconstruction, you know, the deconstruction of, of, of the philosophical tradition. Uh, and of course, deconstruction is not a destruction as such, but it is uh, an attempt to kind of, you know, question, break down um, uh, essentialist assumptions and, and sort of the key foundations of, um, of, uh, of, of, you know, philosophical thought to question everything. So I, I think that's, that's where these two, two thinkers would come together to some extent, actually. Right. Um, yes, yes. I, I think that's probably what they, what they have in common here, actually. I think de- destabilizing the the mm. center or the which I think for Stern, you know, is that is the state or these the spooks, what have you. Yes. Yes. Um, but you also you, you mentioned briefly Nietzsche, uh, and so I'm cur- I'm curious as well to get your your sort of take on the, the differences because I th- there's a mm. ton of overlap I think in 
but there there are some distinctions to be made. There are indeed. I mean, it's it's a it's a it's a vexed question, I think. I mean, and there is some debate about the extent to which Stoner might have influenced uh, Nietzsche. Um, there's been a few books on this, actually, a very old one by um, Albert Levy, I think, on just called Stoner and Nietzsche in French. Um, there's not much evidence, I think, to suggest that uh, Nietzsche was or the degree which he might have been influenced by Stoner, even whether or not he actually read Stoner or, or is familiar with, with his thinking. I mean, I, I suspect he probably was. Right. Uh, but the two thinkers, while they might have, I think, some sort of superficial similarities, I think they're quite different. I mean, uh, I regard Nietzsche to some extent as quite a reactionary thinker, I, I think because he had this, this kind of nostalgia for hierarchies for elites for for some you know for, for for some kind of aristocracy actually um and even if that might become an aristocracy of spirit or an aristocracy of culture rather than you know the actual nobility as such i mean i think in a way it's kind of modeled upon um uh you know a kind of a sort of fundamentally sort of anti-egalitarianism or anti-egalitarian kind of sensibility if you like um, and it, it is modeled on a certain sort of notion of, sort of aristocracy and nobility um uh, and of course, you know his his hostility, Nietzsche's hostility to um, to you know to democracy, to equality, to socialism, and, and and I mean to say nothing of his his absolute hatred of anarchism, um, which he regarded as a kind of a you know philosophy of you know resulting not. I mean, I've actually written about this actually. Yeah, you know, referred to the you know the anarchist dogs who are kind of roaming the streets of European culture. Um, uh, whereas I think Stoner is actually, I mean, even though. You know, anarchists. Uh, some anarchists quite divided actually about Stoner, actually. But um, I think Stoner is a thinker who's probably much more hospitable to you know to to, to, to anarchism, um, and certainly sort of you know there's a tradition of anarcho individualism, which um, you know which Stoner is kind of regarded as a sort of key influence behind. So um, so yes, yeah, so I, I don't think Stoner shares any of Nietzsche's nostalgia for uh, you know for kind of you know hierarchy, whether it's cultural hierarchy or kind of the social hierarchy. Um, uh, which is not to say that he's uh, necessarily a fan of democracy or, or kind of socialist ideas of, of equality either, actually. But I, I mean, I think he's probably kind of equally sceptical of both. Um, but if you look at his uh, notion of, of egoism, it's, it's not a kind of a, a sort of a hierarchical concept. I mean, he doesn't sort of set up any sort of class of egoists who are apparently superior to, to non-egoists. Right. He's not in any sense creating a or, or setting up a kind of a you know, a, a kind of a moral or spiritual ideal to be followed. I mean, it's right. not prescribing egoism. He simply says it, it's it's up to you. It's your choice. Right. In a way, I, I suppose he would also say that we're all, in, you know, whether we acknowledge it or not, we're all, we're all basically egoistic at, at some level. Um, so even in, when we engage in, in sort of non-egoistic um, uh, or seemingly altruistic actions, and so on, we're still doing it at some level from sort of from some egoistic Impulses, which simply means that we're kind of a, in doing so, we're affirming the self. Um, so yeah, but, but the point is that there's no there's no kind of there's no um, as it were inequality between egoists. It's simply up to, to the individual self to kind of realise his or her own uh, inner inner egoism, if you like. I think um, I think this is a sterner quote that ties into this. Is that idea of what does he say? Something along the lines of. There are egoists that do. They are egoists that do not wish to be egoists. Yes, exactly. 
really gets at that the nugget. It's been like what about. Marx is about the proletariat being, you know, sort of going from being a sort of a class in itself to a class for itself, actually. So it's a kind of transition, isn't it, from this kind of you know sort of late, late and sort of unacknowledged egoism to a sort of you know full blown affirmative conscious the um, egoism. I think, but um, but yeah, I mean, once again, he's not setting up any kind of um, moral ideal. He's not saying that we, we should be like this or we should be like that. And I think that's where a lot of people get to turn it quite wrong, actually. A lot of people sort of accuse him of being somewhat inconsistent in the sense that on the one hand, he's, you know, rejecting essences, but on the other hand, you know, critics claim that he's, he's, he's setting up a new kind of essence or a new sort of ideal, And but, but he really isn't, actually. I think he's simply saying that, you know, this is what we can be if we choose to, to, to be so, and it's really up to us. I'm curious to get your take, and you, you touch on this in the book a bit, is this idea of, of Sterner and, anti, and an anti-dialectics. And just right. to sort of ground you a little bit, I, and there's kind of this division between, either, I guess, my, my own interests, and so I have some listeners are more on the kind of like Marxist Hegelian side of things. Right. And then there's a certain amount of like the, the anarchists and, and post-structuralists and then, you know, accelerationists and what have you. So yeah. um, I'm not as, my reading is primarily been in the post-structuralist lens. So I'm not as familiar with Hegel and dialectics and dialectical thinking, although it is something that I'm certainly interested, at least just to kind of understand the concepts so I can discuss them, right? Um, so I'm very curious w- what you mean by anti-dialectics. In this sense, and I think you can even grab. There's a quote, if I can find it. Um, let's see. It was a Deleuze quote. Deleuze sees Sterner as the dialectician who reveals nihilism as the truth of the dialectic. Yes, denial yes. Of, of difference and plurality. Yes. So, um, well, I mean, if you look at the structure of, of you know of Hegel's dialectic, you have this kind of you know, sort of contradiction between the thesis and the antithesis. But it, it, it resolves into a synthesis, into a new kind of you know dialectical unity, and it kind of dissolves again and divides. Um, the I think the point of Stirner's critique of of Hegel and the Hegelian dialectic is that um, it's a fundamentally kind of theological or religious uh, concept. It, it's based on a certain kind of you know idealism. So you know, Stirner, sorry, Hegel talks about this notion of spirit, you know, or, you know, Geist, world spirit, which kind of derives from uh, from Christianity, um, very much part of, of Hegel's kind of Lutheranism, if you like, um, and which kind of works through several stages of world history, for instance, uh, becoming in a way embodied within the notion of, of kind of rationality. So, so the, the Christian spirit becomes a kind of a rational spirit, which kind of, you know, which becomes a spirit of world history, if you like, and, and historical progress. Um, but it ultimately, in a way, resolves itself into the the liberal bourgeois state. In other words, the liberal bourgeois state becomes sort of the embodiment of this of this kind of of this sort of you know ideal or this notion of geist or spirit. Um, and I think this is really what Stirner objects to. Um, uh, so he would say that this is simply. Um, evidence of the fact that that you know um, our modern political institutions, namely the liberal bourgeois state, are basically you know the, sort of the hangover or the legacy of you know Christian thinking of theology, um, and you know Sterner being a kind of anarchist is obviously opposed to the state. He says you know this, 
state and higher enemies, you know, the ego is the ultimate enemy of the state, for instance. Um, and the state, he would say, is based upon, you know, a series of, of, of religious illusions. And we can see this, you know, very much in, 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 in Hegel's notion of, you know, this kind of dialectical unfolding or dialectical resolution, you know, whereby the spirit becomes embodied within the structures of, of the state uh, and, and within the kind of the modern uh, notion of rationality or reason. Um, and I think the figure of the egoist is not, I wouldn't necessarily regard it as being nihilistic in a way, but it is, it is in a way a kind of a, a breakdown of the dialectic. I mean, because the ego is a figure which is, um, which, which cannot be fixed at any, at any particular point. Um, the ego can never be, you know, as it were, resolved or, you know, uh, uh, brought into a kind of a dialectical unity. I mean, in a way, the, the figure of the egoist is a kind of a singularity, which simply cannot Universalized in the uh, in the sense that Hegel might imagine. Um, so this is why I think um, you know Stoner is a kind of a, is is even though even though the structure of his argument is kind of dialectical. I mean he he talks about you know this, you know the ancients and the moderns and so on, um, and he seems to suggest or rather the structure of his argument suggests that in a way the ego is is kind of the dialectical resolution to. To this process, in a way, the egoist is such a kind of unstable figure um, uh, that it's, it's not a resolution at all. It's simply kind of a you know this sort of ongoing void, or rather, sort of empty void. This we call it a creative nothing. This kind of um, yeah, it's basically kind of a nothingness, which 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 cannot take any sort of you know stable uh, form. So it's it's kind of a it's it's a in a way his his, well, his dialectical Stern's so the structure of Stern's dialectical argument is, is very much paradoxical. And in some ways, it's, it's all, I suppose you could say it's a sort of a satire or a satirical take on, on Hegel's dialectic. And I think what he really wants to show is that, you know, if there is an end to this process, it isn't the liberal bourgeois state and it isn't this kind of, you know, reconciliation of historical forces and it's certainly not, you know, reason or some, or some kind of ethical community uh, which which Hegel um, uh, uh, you know points to um, or believes is somehow standing at the end of history. It's it's this kind of you know paradoxical um, figure of the ego who's just kind of you know smiling back at you. So you, know, you haven't quite, you haven't quite got there yet. There is no end to this process. You know, smiling sarcastically. Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> so. In, in looking at Hegel, I, I think one of the first um, misconceptions that I had was that Hegel was not someone concerned with sort of consciousness. And I guess the, you know, mm -hmm. phenomenology sort of makes sense in that regard, but I, I always thought of Hegel as a more sort of macro thinker. So I am interested in, because, you know, there's that sort of link yeah. between Lacan and, uh, and Hegel in terms, yes, of, yes. in terms of, you know, at least the contradiction in, in, the sub, in subjectivity itself. Mm. But seems, seems to be, just from Sterner being a young Hegelian, a bit of that, that focus on consciousness has seeped through just a bit, and I, I know it's not exactly what Sterner is getting at here. But yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, I mean, I mean, you're right. I mean, all of these sort of left Hegelians, young Hegelians are obviously, um, you know, thinking and, and, you know, writing in, in, in the sort of the shadows of, of Hegel or, or, you know, under the influence of Hegel to some extent, um, even even as they, as they were, you know, rejecting him and 
criticizing and trying to kind of radicalize his thought. So, so you know, I mean, Stoner is, is obviously profoundly influenced by uh, by Hegel. But I think um, I think you're right in the sense that you know that, that you know Hegel is is um, you know setting up you know universals, universal ideals, whereas you know, uh, figures like Stoner are. Um, are interested in differences, in singularities, in that which cannot be universalized. Because if you try to kind of universalize something, then you, you, you know, you destroy its difference. You, you kind of, um, um, you know, encompass it within a kind of within a sort of a false abstraction, a false, you know, universality, an artificial uh, ideal, which, um, yeah, which which simply, you know, denies difference, denies plurality. Nice singularity, uh, and for him, that's the you know that's the um, the uh, it's not is it something which which one should avoid? It's something which is basically impossible. Um, you, you know, you simply can't absorb um, differences into into universalities in this way. I think it, the reason I brought this up, I thought it was interesting that um, that Sterner kind of, and you mentioned this in the book, is talking about the state. You have a great line about the state not repressing desire but but channeling it to itself and that sort of and the idea that desire for authority desire to be ruled has to be is is the object or is the object of our what we should attack yes i mean it goes back to this idea of voluntary servitude which which i'm quite um uh quite quite interested in actually so i think i think it's really one of one of the you know the sort of the mysteries of um Political philosophy, and it's something which which we haven't quite answered yet. Which is why why do we voluntarily obey? Why do we, at some level, desire to be dominated? Why do we desire authority? Why do we turn to fascism? Something which 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 Deleuze um, uh, was also quite interested in. Actually, um, I think there's a line in the Ego and its own where he says, you know, every 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 uh, you know every Prussian carries a gendarme in his breast pocket. You know, so um, you know, authority is something which uh, people often desire. There is this, you know, love of the master. Uh, Wilhelm Reich in um, his mass psychology fascism was also grappling with the same kind of problem. Why, why do, you know, why do people turn to the fascists in the 1930s? What kinds of motivations um, did they have? Why did they actually come to desire their own servitude, their own domination? Um, so Stirner, you know, believes that, you know, in a way the state as a institution of power and authority wouldn't be possible without our own, you know, without our, without our obedience to it. It just simply wouldn't be able to function. Uh, and once again, it's kind of an illusion which is constituted by our obedience to it. Um, and we, I suppose we have to, you know, register the fact that power just simply wouldn't, wouldn't operate, it wouldn't function uh, without, you know, without our complicity. Um, so, so, yes, I mean, the, the state works by... Yes, by channeling our desire towards it, by making us want it, by make us, making us think that we, that we need it, that we need it to, 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 you know, to govern our lives and to you know, manage social relations and so on. Um, we certainly see this, and this has you know, particularly a resonance right now in the, in the context of the police. Yes, absolutely. Arm of yes. the state. Yes, yes, absolutely. Um, but, you know, I mean, we... we, we Watching these these events in the United States with uh, with absolute fascination and uh, um, a great deal of um, satisfaction and happiness and joy, actually, which uh, which which I think is a certain kind of break with voluntary servitude to some extent. Uh, I mean, obviously, you know, you know, there's 
there's a kind of a division, I suppose, between sort of you know peaceful protests and uh, and insurrections and so on. But um, um, I think it's actually a very significant moment, actually, that you know the um, you know people are kind of turning against the police. I mean, they're kind of redirecting their desire elsewhere. They're calling for the abolition of the, of the police, actually, which is it's very. I mean, for me, it's a very kind of interesting moment. I, I think in um, you know U.S. history and, and U.S. politics. You mentioned insurrection, which is mm, something which is a, absolutely <laughs> which Sterner uh, advocates over over revolution or as opposed to revolution. Yes, and uh, I love this. This is a kind of a, a paraphrase from the book: is insurrection is about becoming what one is not, and anarchism of subjectivity, which I yes. thought was just a fantastic idea. Yes, I mean, uh, there's a I mean, there's a great quote where where he, he distinguishes between you know the revolution and the insurrection. Um, and he says, you know, the revolution is about um, creating a new kind of society, a new kind of establishment, for instance. It's based on the series of, you know, kind of, you know, sort of moral ideals. Um, uh, so it's an act of power. It's an act of what um, I suppose, um, you know, you might call sort of constituting power, right? So you know, you you um, you have a revolution against existing institutions, but you just simply create new institutions or a new kind of established in place of the old one. Whereas insurrection, as Donna says, you know, leads us to never letting ourselves be arranged, but to arrange ourselves. I think it's the that's more or less the, the quote. So, in a way, the insurrection is something which starts from from the self, um, and it's about in a way, you know, the ego is kind of affirming uh, him or herself, and through the act of as it were, self-affirmation or this sort of, you know, this, this sort of release from voluntary servitude, all institutions simply just sort of crumble into the dust. Um, so I suppose, I mean, I, I don't think he's necessarily opposed to the notion of revolution as such, but I think he would say that, you know, all revolutions start with the insurrection first, and the insurrection is the reclaiming of the self by the self. Right, that's great. <laughs> reclaiming of this, of this kind of alienated self which we... Right project onto political institutions or we project onto, you know, sort of moral ideals and so on or to abstractions. We kind of, you know, we, we sort of we sort of reabsorb it, we, we reclaim it back into the self and everything kind of springs from that from that kind of one moment. So it's 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 kind of a micropolitics, um, isn't it? So the insurrection is kind of a micropolitics and it's microethics. It's it's a, it's a release from our own sort of self-domination um, you know, it's the affirmation of our own freedom, our own autonomy. And whatever political consequences spring from that is, in a way, almost secondary to this kind of initial um, reclamation of the self. So, yeah, I mean, I think the insurrection is actually a very interesting idea. I mean, um, it's, it's very much kind of an ethic. It's an ethics. It's an, it's an ethical um, act before it becomes a political act. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, so as we promised, we're, we sort of want to transition to Lacan a bit, but I'm, I think this very interesting notion that the thre- the through line that connects Sterner and Lacan is perhaps this idea. So like we mentioned, Sterner has the idea of the creative nothing mm. and L- Lacan has the lack as, as the heart of, or what really kind of defines subjectivity. Mm. And I think that's an interesting way to connect those two thinkers. Um, because it's rejecting that sort of re- rejecting essences. So when you could, uh, on the surface, it's kind of how did these two fit together? But when you really look at, into it, at least at that little line of rejecting that essence at the heart of, sub- of the subject itself is yes. that kind of connective tendon or, or, or tissue. 
Yes, I mean, it's, it's, I suppose it's more to do with Lacan's notion of, of the real, which is, you know, that which is, which is you know, outside the symbolic order, that which cannot be symbolised, um, that which is, um, or at least it occupies a kind of liminal relationship with, with language. So it's only, in a way, thinkable through language, but at the same time, it's, it's kind of outside it. It's kind of beyond its limits. Um, so it refers to the, some notion of, 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 of the void, if you like, of kind of emptiness, which, you know, which cannot be, you know, Represented, um, you know, and of course, in, in Lacan's uh, sort of psychology or psychoanalytic theory, um, it's the you know it refers to this kind of original sort of you know sort of jurisance that the subject experiences um, you know with the mother, which which you know which you know which 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 later gets kind of as it were shut out from the symbolic order. But I think there is a connection, isn't there, between uh, between that notion of the real and the and Stirner's idea that you know the egoist is ultimately grounded upon this sort of indefinable nothingness, which is to some degree outside of language and even outside of of thought itself. Paradoxically, I mean, he actually at one point towards the end of the book he talks about this idea of thoughtlessness, uh, in other words, of a certain kind of um, not so much an experience, but a, a certain um, Void, which is yeah, which is beyond conceptual structures, um, which is to some degree unthinkable, but at the same time is the very basis of uh, of our own our own sort of subjectivity. Um, so perhaps it refers to a certain sort of sort of ontological anarchism, you know, whereby meaning itself or fixed meanings, fixed representations become destabilized, or, or perhaps as it were grounded upon a kind of an anarchic. Void, which 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 makes which kind of yeah, which destabilizes their their, their identity. Um, so yes, we we can think of something which is beyond representation or beyond symbolization, which at the same time becomes a very basis for um, our attempts to construct meaning. Perhaps that's right. a rather, rather sort of tenuous link, but it's, I, I think there is a kind of a parallel there, right? I mean, it's, there's, there's something. Oh, absolutely. There is some kind of common ground there, I would say. I, I definitely think so. Um, you describe the self as, here in, in the book, as, as kind of an empty, un, undefined and contingent thing, a process, right. um, a, a flow, a, a continuous flow of self-creating flux. Yes. Not to get us off topic too much, but my immediate thought, even though obviously I'm <laughs> not the expert, but um, it reminded me a bit of, of the body without organs. And I don't know if I'm reading too much into that or, <laughs> or not. That's a concept which I've struggled to understand really. Which I just, you know, oh, that's hilarious. I just, I know, yeah, we're just making this stuff up. Yeah. <laughs> Around doing drugs and the yeah, body about organs. Yeah, that sounds like a good. Sounds idea. good. <laughs> well, write write that yeah. down. <laughs> it's, it's experimental philosophy. So, yeah. um, yes, I, I, yes. I mean, to the degree to which I I, I do have you know to good, the good the, the degree to which I do understand. I mean, it's um yeah, once would refer to once again to some notion of a kind of a. Uh, of contingency of, of becoming something which which cannot be sort of put into fixed borders or boundaries. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> that's about all I got. On that one. <laughs> <laughs> Brief off-topic. Well, it's sort of on topic. Have you seen? Are you familiar with the uh, the Deleuze memes of? Can you kind of? It's an angry tone, and it's explain Deleuze to me. Don't dumb it down, and all. The, Right, no, I haven't seen that one. I'll, no. I'll have to send it to you. So it's a, it's a pretty popular one. 
right. they get circulated quite a bit. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, so we already went into the creative nothing and its relation to Lacan. And I think now if I'm ready to perhaps jump into Lacan and I'm kind of curious before we really, we do is to just kind of get, because personally Lacan, I think I don't, even though he's kind of a bastard, I, I can't help but have, I don't know, there's something about him that's alluring. Sure. It is this sort of, I don't know. He's just, <laughs> he has an aura. He has, he has no, stage no. presence. You know what I mean? Yes. No, you're <laughs> a very enigmatic character, of course. But uh, I mean, look, he's a, he's a, he's a thing has had a huge influence on, you know, my own, my own thinking. Um, it's, I, I sometimes quite, find it quite difficult to actually think without Lacan, actually, um, and without the influence of, of, of psychoanalytic theory. Um, so, you know, I mean, there's, uh, I mean, yes, I mean, I, I think he has sort of, you know, shaped my, my, my political theory in, in a lot of ways. It's definitely, so the, it's counterintuitive, I think, for anarchism and, and psychoanalysis to be, to be a connection. So, but I, I haven't really, it's only been the last maybe two years that I've had any exposure to psychoanalysis. And now I'm, that's all I can think about almost. <laughs> yeah, I mean, um, well, I've, I've actually written about uh, anarchism and psychoanalysis actually in, in a couple of pieces. I mean, I think there's, there are some connections there. So, I mean, if you, if you look at you know, Lacan's work on the, uh, the discourse of the master um, and the discourse of the hysteric in the university and the, the analyst of the very complicated theory of the four discourses. I think there's a kind of a, um, I think that, that, that model can sort of be mapped onto the relationship between, you know, the revolutionary on the one hand who'd be the hysteric. And of course, you know, the can relates, you know, revolutionary desire to the hysterics desire because the hysteric is always kind of, you know, questioning authority and some, but at the same time, the hysteric is someone who, indeed, the revolutionary, is someone who, who secretly desires the master. Of course, this was his famous um, line to the, uh, you know, the rebellious students um, <laughs> in May '68. He said, you know, you know, revolutionary desires only one thing, which is the desire for a master. What you really want, he said, is another master. You will get one. Uh, and perhaps he was right. And of course, there is that, you know, very, you know perhaps controversial thesis that, you know, May, May 68 essentially led to, you know, new kinds of neoliberal structures of, of power, which are based upon a certain kind of, you know, you know decent notion of decentralised agency and so on. Um, so all revolutionary desire gets co-opted or sort of reincorporated into you know, new structures of power, new structures of authority, whether they're sort of hierarchical or, or sort of, you know, flattened out, networked, decentralised. <laughs> So we need to somehow break with this dialectic once again, don't we, between you know, revolutionary desire on the one hand and the master who who is you know pulled down by the revolutionary, but you know only to kind of create a new sort of a new position of master in its place. So how do we do this? And and this is where the discourse of the analyst comes. And the analyst is sort of a circuit breaker between that you know between the hysteric and, and the master. Um, and the analyst is someone who um, invites us to, as Lacan puts it, traverse the fundamental fantasy of revolutionary desire. In other words, to kind of um, get over this idea that somehow, you know, the object of your desire lies on the other side of power. That you know, in other words, the thing which is preventing the narrative is that the thing which is preventing you from 
realizing your desire or from attaining the object of your desire. It's that thing that we call power or authority or the state or the law. And if only we kind of break through that barrier, then we'll be happy, we'll be fulfilled, we'll be free, we'll live in fully liberated uh, society. This is the fantasy of, 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 of all revolutions, isn't it? That somehow everything will be resolved once a revolution happens. Um, and it's been proven to, to be untrue time and time again. All revolutions create their own problems, their own new uh, systems of power. So some, we, we have to have to develop a different kind of, um, uh, I guess, position in relation to power, actually, which is not strictly the one of, of the or the position of the revolution, perhaps the position of the insurrectionist. Maybe we somehow need to, I don't know, you know, reconfigure power relations or somehow, I don't know, I don't know, uh, reconstitute on the basis of, of, of ourselves. What does that mean? What am I trying to say? <laughs> it goes back, I think, once again to the, the, the notion of, of, of the egoist. I mean, the egoist is someone who determines his or her own reality in, in a sort of completely autonomous way. Um, and I suppose I'll take the kind of the Foucauldian position. You're never actually going to overcome power altogether. There's always going to be power in any kind of society, um, whether those power relations are sort of hierarchical or perhaps more sort of egalitarian and reciprocal, but perhaps we just have to reconcile ourselves with the fact that there will be at some level power relations. Um, and what this perhaps calls for is a sort of ongoing ethical critique of power, which in a way never really ends, right? An ongoing sort of ethical interrogation of power without perhaps the illusion that, you know, you can be sort of completely free or completely liberated or have a society which is completely without power relations. Um, so I think I think that's what I take from Lacan in relation to radical politics. I mean, on one reading, I suppose you could say that, you know, Lacan is, 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 is quite conservative in a way because, you know, he's basically... You know, warning all revolutionaries that you know it's all going to end in, <laughs> in disaster and it's going to end up in a new uh, uh, in a new discourse of mastery. But on the other hand, I think it's it's quite a um, a worthwhile um, sort of cautionary tale, if you like, to you know to revolutionaries to really kind of think about what you're doing and to kind of invent new forms of politics. And maybe the old model of revolution, you know, whereby we simply imagine that we can destroy the state or destroy capitalism. As in one sort of grand event, is right. something which just doesn't 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 really work anymore. Um, perhaps it never really worked. You know, maybe the the goal is to kind of invent new um, uh, you know micro political relations between people rather than to uh, even 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 in the in the current moment, right? So rather than sort of waiting for the great revolutionary event at the end of history, you know, we invent kind of micro political micro ethical insurrections in the present moment. I mean, this is. Also, very much to do with you know anarchism's idea of um, of prefiguration. You know, we, we have to kind of in a way invent the revolution in the present moment. We have to live as if we're already free, right? Even, even within even within very confined spaces, even within you know institutions, for instance, even within you know the within the oppressions of, of, of current society, we simply have to sort of carve out little spaces of, of freedom and, and autonomy and so on, where relations between individuals can be different, can be more, more reciprocal, more self-determining and more autonomous. So I, you mentioned kind of the patrician um, sort of essence of Lacan. I've had a joke that, and, and this is through kind of like the, the idea of, uh, I think 
like Mick Land has the idea of complexity where the future causes the past. So I have this joke about uh, Plato got his whole idea for the philosopher king from Lacan. He somehow, that, that was his vision was Lacan and, and his fur coat with, <laughs> with his smashed up cigar. With, with, with that, a public cigar. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, this is getting a bit off topic, but I'm curious, you've mentioned at least in this, in the, from Bakunin to Lacan book, that Deleuze and Watari's notion of desire has a, there's a metaphysical aspect to it that, and I'm curious if you, how you see Lacan's or if you still see Lacan's as in opposition to that or how Lacan avoids a metaphysical as, as a metaphysician. I suppose on a perhaps on a more superficial reading, um, you could say that the you know the idea of desire is um, I, I suppose because it's so it's you know so sort of prevalent and it's so as a word to all encompassing is that which as a word derives subjectivity for instance, uh, and, um, it is kind of a metaphysical concept and of course you know um, Deleuze's uh, famous uh, Deleuze Guattari's famous critique of psychoanalysis is that you know desire is is based on lack. So uh, you know, and they wanted to kind of create a new understanding of desire, which is you know, we, which is kind of you know, sort of uh, about plenitude, about excess. Um, so it's not based on sort of lack, emptiness. Doesn't go back to you know the lack of the mother, the lack of the object of desire, for instance, as in you know sort of classical psychoanalysis. But on the contrary, it's something which is. You know, self-constituting, self-creating—it's it's something which kind of exceeds rather than, you know, exceeds borders and boundaries rather than something which is, you know, which is which is kind of a hole or an emptiness. Um, I, I think, I mean, I think you know, the most you have in mind, you know, Freud and 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 you know, Wilhelm Reich. I think when they're talking about, you know, or criticizing the notion of or the psychoanalytic notion of desire as lack. I think I think Lacan's idea of desire is probably more interesting, perhaps less metaphysical in in, in the sense that. Um, even though it is based on lack, I mean, I think you know he kind of later became more interested in in the drives and in sort of Jura so on. So there was kind of a he, he kind of moved away from the kind of the centrality of desire. And, and the point about the you know, the drives is that they're they're kind of you know they're they're they're, they're multiple, they're, they're plural, they're not sort of one concept, but but they're many. Um, so yeah, so I don't think it's it's a I don't think it's something which can be sort of you know sort of um, universalized into one kind of you know single entity in that way, um, and maybe in a way you could say that Lacan does move slightly closer to to Deleuze in the end actually, um, it where definitely, yeah, somehow, which is sort of multiple rather than rather than a sort of a you know single unified entity. I have heard it argued that I guess after the in the later Lacan after the publication of Anti Oedipus that he sort of that's when Lacan really starts to get weird is right around seminar twenty or so. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's, yeah, and I think so maybe I mean, that's also his importance is he's kind of the first thinker to get into this really weird terrain that that Deleuze and Guattari you know pick up and, and sort of run with that. Um, mm. I also don't think that necessarily, so even though Lacan's desire is predicated on lack, I mean, mm. you talk, you talk very much. So that, that lack that is kind of, there's a, I think that lack is obviously that's productive as well. Like that can still map onto this, um, mm. this very um, positive 
or creative force, perhaps, mm. and desire that Deleuze and Guattari were were trying to to focus on. And um, in the book, you discuss a little bit of this kind of tie between this sort of, and maybe this is more so with the real than desire specifically, but that the the space that this gives us for an outside, something beyond identity. Right. Uh, it's the outside, which is also on the inside. This is the, the you know the paradox of the the, the Klein bottle, right? Yeah, exactly. That's right. Um, you know, those sort of topological structures that Lacan experiments with, where you know you start on one side of the of the uh, what's he call it? The you know the, the kind of the the oral you know, the, with inside out, exactly. And you sort of end up on the inside. So, um, so in a way, it kind of it kind of deconstructs the whole you know inside outside sort of binary, doesn't it? So. I suppose what Lacan would say is that, you know, that even though the real is outside of language and outside of symbolization, it's that which cannot be represented. At the same time, it's only thinkable or we can only approach it through language and, and, and through symbolization. Otherwise, we, we have, otherwise it, it, it's, it's simply, you know, without meaning as such. It simply doesn't exist. So it's this kind of liminal space, which is neither sort of strictly outside nor strictly inside, but sort of something of both. Um, what do we do with that notion? Well, can we think about subjectivity in, the, in those terms as well, actually? Can we think about ourselves in, in that sort of um, liminal space? You mean it? <laughs> we want to. Yeah, no, you're good. You're good. Um, <laughs> be the point. <laughs> that's what I desire. Yes. That's right. Yes, that's right. Maybe that's the inevitable structure of subjectivity, isn't it? Uh, there's certainly what what what, what Lacan would say that um, uh, you know we like we spend our whole life trying to you know make sense of ourselves. We spend our life trying to fit in with a symbolic order. You know who am I? You know, you know what's what's my identity? Um, but it never quite works. There's always some aspect of ourselves which kind of doesn't quite fit in, which kind of That's slips out from yeah. the structures, right? But that it's it's that which escapes symbolization, which is which Lacan would say is that which also at the same time propels desire. I mean, in other words, if we knew exactly who we are and what we wanted uh, and what our subjectivity meant, what our identity was, then we would just stop desiring. That'd be it. That'd be a bit like, like death, I suppose. I mean, death being the ultimate reconciliation of subjectivity. So the fact that we sort of keep on desiring means, means is, or rather is precisely um, because there's an element of ourselves which doesn't quite fit. And in a way, once again, Stoner was, was onto the same thing. I mean, he was, you know, he talked about this figure of the young man being the other of man. So, so we have this kind of, you know, sort of, you know, humanist figure of man, you know, which kind of comes from, you know, from Feuerbach, this kind of anthropomorphic, anthropocentric idea, um, man being modelled on God, man being this kind of, you know, uh, man becomes a sort of ideal of morality, of rationality, um, and it becomes an obligation, I think, too. Right? Yeah, it becomes an, absolutely it becomes an obligation, um, a religious obligation, actually. Uh, but Stoner says that you know we, we try to conform to this you know moral ideal of man, of what it means to be human. We try to conform to this essence, or we try to sort of seek this essence inside of ourselves. But there's always this little part which kind of falls outside of it, um, which escapes it, and it's that part which escapes it, which is which is interesting. For Stern, it's a sign that we, 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 you know, we are singularities. We simply cannot be um, encompassed within these universal structures of meaning. It doesn't work. That has a lot of resonance now, I think, in terms of, 
of the protests as well mm. as far yeah. as what is what is constant what makes you know vi- what's a protester and what's what's the moral type of protest is all you know non non-violent protest is the moral thing right? yes yeah yeah yes no absolutely i mean that's um and you can see also how how power kind of play, um, tries to play that game, so that we know you know Trump says, well, it's not it's not it's not the peaceful protesters; it's these you know these these sort of anarchist disruptors who are going to come from the outside just to just to stir shit up. You know, um, that's that's a game that power tries to play, kind of divides the peaceful protesters from the, from the troublemakers. Um, but yes, I mean there is that kind of um, attempt to um, say you know those who engage, engage in peaceful protests, they're you know, they're doing the right thing. Um, it's those who engage in certain acts of violence or property destruction, for instance, they're the, sort of the, the malignant destructive force, which we need to um, we need to uh, you know we need to to separate from the from the, the peaceful movement. Which really goes to I think the distinction between morals and, and ethics. Yeah, there, right. Is that right? The moral the moral thing is you know be don't damage property but the ethical thing the, the ethics of it are yes absolutely <laughs> in a sense well i can damage property all they want so it's not going to damage my property i'm, I'm quite happy really um <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's yeah. no absolutely i mean i mean um to the extent to which there is a, a distinction between morality and ethics i mean um ethics is something which is in a way um up to autonomous individuals to to kind of determine. I mean, so it's not to say that you know, it, it's not to say that people don't live by an ethical code, but it's also an ethical code which, which has to be to some degree shaped by the individual. It's not the same as nihilism or um, complete relativism. I mean, Foucault was some was someone who was interested in you know when he was looking at the sort of the cult, the ethical cultures of the self in antiquity. He was looking at the ways in which you know prior to early Christianity. Um, Different cultures and uh, uh, develops their own, or individuals within those cultures develop their own sort of moral, their own ethical codes, I should say, which were quite rigorous uh, and they were really based upon you know how one should live, how one should interact with others, you know, referred to everything from you know sort of you know diet and exercise to sexual relations, um, and for, for for Foucault it was also a political question. So you know, you know, he was interested in the way in which you know. For instance, in ancient Greek philosophy, if you didn't have sort of some degree of ethical self-master or ethical uh, control over your own desires, if you like, then you had no control over how you would relate to other people. Um, I mean, the you know, if you read Plato, I mean, the, the the tyrant is always a kind of very unstable character who simply has no mastery over himself, over his own his own lust, his own his own desires. So I think that's, that's the other thing I would say about ethics. I mean, ethics is, is, is something which kind of starts from the self and one's own ability to exercise a degree of power and a degree, a degree of mastery over oneself and one's own desires. And Stoner was interested in this notion too. I mean, the egoist is someone who can master his or her own desires, drives, inclinations, and, and so on. So contrary to what many critics of Stoner would say, I mean, Stoner is someone who's, who's, I think, deeply engaged and interested in ethical questions, but not, not the ethics which kind of call the morality, which kind of comes from, you know, from Christianity and from idealism, which, which, which kind of gets universalised into right. you know, new kinds of idols, but rather an ethics which kind of 
flows from the self. Would you call Would you consider that a materialist ethics? Certainly not an idealist ethics. Um, <laughs> yeah, I guess. That's true. I mean, I, I think I, I don't know. If, it depends what you mean by materialism, I suppose. I, mean, I don't think Stern is a materialist, sitting on the sense that the, the Marx was. Right. Right. I, in fact, I think in a broader probably, context. I think. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I think you probably see um, idealism and materialism as we see materialism as like almost like the flip side of idealism. So the, the problem with materialism. Uh, and this this kind of idea that you know within material relations is this kind of this is sort of imminence. Um, I think you would regard this as another kind of theological notion, another sort of you know, inward spirit, which which kind of um, and as we know from Marx, of course, you know the the motor of you know historical materialism is 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 sort of the dialectic and you know the movement of history. So there is this kind of spirit central to to Marx's historical materialism. But yeah, I mean. I think I think I really think Stern is onto something which is completely different. Actually, um, it's about singularities first and foremost, not not pluralities, but singularities. And the singularities are kind of you know self-defining, um, constitutively open entities, which have no sort of fixed borders or boundaries, which are sort of constantly kind of constituting and reconstituting themselves. Perhaps, I suppose, perhaps you could say it's sort of close to, to Deleuze's notion of, of becoming, that's kind of a materialist ontology, but that's about as close as it would come, I would say. Okay. You make an interesting argument that, at least in this book, that post-structuralism doesn't really account or allow for there to be an outside to power and, and discourse, which I think is, is kind of interesting. It is. Um, in the sense of, because you kind of also say that Lacan is going beyond the post-structuralist in this way and having that lack or the, the Lacanian real perhaps being that the, the crack that can allow us to, to conceive of a new freedom. Yes, maybe. I mean, it's funny. I mean, I wrote that thing such a long time. <laughs> I know, Rick. I can't remember what, what the hell I was talking Putting about. your memory to the test today. <laughs> <laughs> Just trying to sort of make sense of, of, you know, confused morass of my own ideas back then. <laughs> uh, it's, it's good, though, because what I think is really interesting here is you typically kind of see Lacan as this sort of strange bridge or connection point between structuralism mm. and post-structuralism. So I thought yeah, it was yeah. very interesting that you were saying he even goes has an openness that even Deleuze and Guattari sort of don't really have the ability to. Yeah. Capture. Yeah. And, and it might be that perhaps I've, I've slightly changed my, <laughs> my, my view of sure, sure. since then. Um, I, I'm not sure I would say now that Lacan, this is really goes uh, beyond post-structuralism. I mean, post-structuralism is a funny kind of, you know, catch-all, a bit like postmodernism, always, and it's sort of, sort of it's funny, sort of you know, catch-all category. Uh, most of the key post-structuralist thinkers would, would, wouldn't even know what it meant, or uh, they would probably um, they would have re refuted the term. I mean, you have you have a kind of post-structuralism a la Derrida, which is very much focused on language. Um, uh, is there an outside of language um, for Derrida? No, probably not. But I mean, in a way, language always kind of destabilizes itself, right? I mean, you know, language, uh, all the structures of language always kind of trip up over, over reporters, over, you know, slips of the tongue, accidents of speech, um, you know, 
contradictory concepts, um, what he calls, you know, you know, supplement, for instance, the way in which one linguistic concept will depend upon another, which at the same time kind of pulls it down and undermines it. Um, for Foucault, yes, I mean, power is, is obviously a very, you know, central concept. Um, on a superficial reading, you might say that, you know, um, there's no outside to power, but I mean, in a way there is. Um, you know, at, at, at sort of the edges or the limits of power relations, there are acts of resistance, for instance, which to some extent exceed power relations, even if power relations get sort of reconstituted later. So, and so, so I would say that with 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 Lacan, I mean, the real is that which kind of exceeds you know, language and symbolization. But once again, it, it's kind of it's sort of it's it's in a sort of liminal zone, isn't it? Which is you know, both within and with outside of uh, a language. So I think, look, I think I think looking back, I probably put perhaps <laughs> reasons for simplicity. I just put Lacan back in, in with a post structure, just of a, of a different kind of a different stripe, different kind. You know, focused on different kinds of questions, different philosophical questions, and, and so on. And perhaps there isn't all that much to be gained by somehow seeing Lacan as being a bit of a sort of an outlier or something. You know, yeah. You do, you do mention a bit about the uh, I think it's in the Ecree is the Dissard and Kant right, piece right. about the law, and I. I don't know. I think that feels very relevant to our, to our current moment as well. Mm. And sort of yeah. how the law can sort of constitutes itself is something that I think both or really Sterner in particular really understands in a very sophisticated way. Well, you mean the law of desire? Um, yeah. I mean, I mean, I mean, Lacan's argument basically is that, you know, there's a, uh, you know, Decide is the other side of, of, of Kant. So, um, you know, Kant tries to um, correct a, a kind of a system of law. Um, uh, but, you know, he's impelled by a certain kind of desire for the law, whereas, you know, Decide, in the same sort of way, is engaged in sort of a Kantian project, trying to found, you know, uh, you know the law of perversity, if you like, uh, um, on the basis of uh, desire. So, so, I mean, certainly for Lacan, anyway, I mean, the law and desire are kind of almost like two sides of the same coin, right? I mean, so, you know, the illusion of desire or the illusion of the object of desire is that which is on the other side of the law. Um, and in a way, the law being the barrier between, you know, the subject and that which he desires um, is at the same time the thing which constitutes the illusion of desire. In other words, you know, you only really think you want something because there's some barrier that stands... Right. In the way of your desire, and that, that barrier, you know, in classical psychoanalytic terms, is you know, is, is the father. The father's no, the father's prohibition. The father who says, you know, no, you can't sleep with your mummy, you can't desire your mummy. Um, so, you know, in the classic sort of Oedipal narrative, obviously, the, you know, the, you know, the Oedipal desire is sort of constituted through the father's prohibition, right? Uh, um, but at the same time, it's kind of an illusory construct created by by the law. Um, I mean, it, it, it makes perfect sense, I, th I think, to think about it in those terms, right? I mean, it's uh, you don't desire things in and of themselves. You desire things because someone says no to you. Someone says, no, you can't have it. Right. Uh, that It's that contradiction in Lacan that I just find fascinating. That mm. all, often it's sort of against the grain or against against sort of this rationalist viewpoint that we're often 
instructed upon that is, you know, everything makes sense. And, you know, like you said earlier, mm-hmm. that we're rational actors and yes, yes, using yes, absolutely. Yes. and so forth. But there's, there's nothing rational about human desire. Gosh. <laughs> um, I mean, I mean, I mean, Lacan would say animals in a way much more rational than, than, um, than human beings are um, because animals are kind of utility maximized. I mean, whatever an animal does is entirely rational. It's geared towards its own survival, whereas, you know, we human beings, for the most part, do things which are entirely sort of self-destructive, go against our own rational self-interest and all ways. Um, we're not utility maximizing at all. <laughs> we're driven by, you know, by, by unconscious desires, which, um, you know, weird sort of fantasies and uh, we believe we want something when we don't and, um, you know, that's the, that's the, the magic, if you like, of, uh, uh, of, of human desire is, is it all ultimately goes against our rational self-interest right. what makes us interesting the the assumption that we can really truly understand or know our desire but mm. it's always denied to us i guess that's the is that kind of what the bard subject is is getting at in, in a sense well i guess you, you actually described it earlier it's like only because there's the you're prohibited do you desire yeah but it's you see it's even more complicated than that, actually in, in a way um, uh, we, the anxiety is created when the object of desire comes too close, right? Why is that the case? Because we know that if we, if we actually get what we want, that's the end of our desire altogether. And one thing that desire wants is to keep on desiring, right? So in other words, if you think about it like it's, if you get what you want, you don't want it anymore. You always want something else. That's, that's the nature of desire, right? You think that somehow your desires are going to be fulfilled if you have this great relationship, or this great house, or make money, or whatever, or get that job you've always wanted. But actually, when you get those things, you actually realise actually it's, it's not that great. You know, I didn't really want this in the first place. <laughs> want something else, um, and that's so. Desire wants to keep on desiring. So when the object of desire comes too close, what do we do? We we erect imaginary barriers um, in the way of that object of desire. So that we almost have an excuse to say, well, I could have got that, but you know, if it wasn't for this thing which stands in my in my way. Uh, okay. I mean, going back to you know, revolution and political design, it's, it's the same with, with revolutions, right? So, so in a way, the revolu- the revolutionary, as a kind of a hysteric, has an interest in fetishizing power or fetishizing the state. You see, because it kind of operates as a kind of an excuse. So the revolutionary can say, well, I could be free if only it were not for the structure of power that kind of stands in the way of my desire. It prohibits me. Right. Okay. Represses me or, or oppresses me, for instance. Right. So, so I think in a way, you know, it, the, the law is created through desire. We, we desire the law precisely because the law operates as a kind of, the law is, is that which, which, um, you know, once again, allows us to, to kind of a, to, to, as it were, to avoid or to escape a confrontation with our own desire. You had a very so, interesting. You know, it's, 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 yeah. Go ahead. No, I was going to say, does that make sense? As, oh, as yes, yes. No, absolutely. Um, you had a really interesting discussion here, too. And you, I think you kind of hit on this quite a bit, but I'm, I just thought it was something to highlight here is this uh, the idea of the place of, the, of power and its ties to the Lacanian real. And like you discussed, that sort of the real of it, that antagonism that can mm. never be overcome or suppressed and how that will sort of, you, you squash the real here, it's going to pop up elsewhere. Right, yes. yes. 
and I think that applies very well, like you said, to re- to revolutions, right? You think that that <laughs> we're always, we try to press it up, but it it will just manifest itself in a different form. Yes, indeed. <laughs> yes. Um, yes, no. The, the real is is that which is you know which is basically irrepressible, right? I mean, it's it's, it's it is the structure of I don't know the you know sort of human experience and and human desire, right? So you you know you 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 know, you think you, you've attained the object of desire and, and, and yes, you haven't, it always eludes you. Um, so, you know, the outside is that which, um, yeah, we, which, you know, we, which, which is ir- irreducible, you could say. In this, in this context, where do we, can, is there a place of resistance that we can occupy at all? It's a difficult question, isn't it? I mean, I, I think... There is no, um, you know, I mean, uh, in the Bukunda Lakan book, I talk about the, un- the, the uncontaminated um, place of power. In other words, you know, the fantasy of the of revolutions is that there's this, there's this kind of, as it were, um, you know, morally pure position for the revolutionary to take um, that's somehow outside of power relations. And I don't think there is, actually. Um, I, think, I think there's contingent spaces of resistance which exist within parallelations and I think those give us an opportunity to actually you know, um, re- reconstitute, reconfigure parallelations in ways which are you know, more sort of egalitarian, more fluid, more free. Um, but can you ever sort of get outside of power completely? I'm, I'm not sure, actually. Uh, I mean, I'm very sceptical about this notion of a completely liberated society. Maybe we can only speak about, you know, what, what Hacken Bay referred to as, you know, temporary autonomous zones. You know, you know, little sort of moments. And space is of insurrection. I mean, I think, you know, what's happening in the United States is all, is a kind of a autonomous zone or a temporary autonomous zone, for instance. You know, spaces of resistance, of confrontation, um, where people also have an opportunity to kind of, um, you know, invent for themselves different kinds of relations, uh, not even with power, but also with, 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 with one another. Um, <clears throat> and we also find... Um, I mean, other examples of this. I mean, I thought, I thought, you know, Occupy for all its faults was quite an interesting experiment in, in, in creating autonomous forms of politics, even if it was totally got blocked down by, by sort of procedure and, you know, silly sort of hand gestures and that kind of thing. I mean, it nevertheless, it was an interesting experiment in an attempt to kind of create a, a new kind of sort of public space, but it wasn't a permanent space, and, and perhaps it couldn't have been. Um, you know, so so these experiments, I think, are always you know interesting and valid and and, and worthwhile. But I, I don't think you're ever going to find yourself in the, in a in this sort of you know completely sort of liberated um, or permanently liberated space. I just, I just I think I think there's always going to be this kind of antagonism or this sort of contestation with uh, with, with with power. I think that sort of that wraps up our kind of Lacan discussion. Just had a couple mm-hmm. of. of <laughs> <laughs> Closing, closing questions I wanted to get your opinion on. One was I wanted to know if you had a point of view on accelerationism or kind of the work of, of the CCRU because I feel like there is – I think you do have an earnest approach to examining kind of what our situation is when it comes to power and what our options are that I think is somewhat, at least you know, in some strains – of accelerationism is, is also present, right? Um, sort of recognizing these these tr- quaint, you know, twentieth century notions of revolution are simply, you know, that the time is sort of past 
for those methods. And we have to, we've got to come up with something new or a new approach or new tactics, et cetera. Yes, but I'm not sure of necessarily equate that with, with acceleration as many. I mean, the CCR, that, that, that's sort of Nick Land's old outfit at work. Right. And, um, you know, what's, what's Nick Land doing these days? <laughs> yeah. Neo-fascist right. track, isn't it? Um, yeah. And maybe that's where acceleration, accelerationism, you know, gets you to or leads you to. I mean, what's the, what's the idea of accelerationism? You put everything about capitalism into overdrive in the, in the perhaps the illusory or vain hope that somehow capitalism will kind of, you know, fall over itself or collapse under the weight of its own contradictions. But maybe all you get is just new and worse forms of capitalism, um, you know, Very skeptical, I have to say, of, of accelerationist philosophy. Actually, um, and, and I think Nick Land is, is, a, is a perfect example of, of, of you know the dark side of, of this you know seemingly kind of revolutionary um, discourse. Right, it's quite sad. I do. I, I, his early work, I think, is is quite interesting, and he definitely can write. Um, yes, yes, he can write prose. But uh, yeah, it, it is quite sad. I did. I do follow him on Twitter and yes, he does. He's on about all this gibberish about IQ and. No, absolutely. I mean, like it, that often. It ends up in this, in this kind of sort of neo-feudalism, doesn't it? You know, where, where he's, you know, he's basically um, affirming, you know, kind of, you know, new and elite sort of structures of, of, of capitalist power, which are, you know, you know, whereby the whole, even the, the very basic notion of kind of, you know, sort of, you know, liberalism um, and democracy uh, being completely removed. I mean, it's, 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 fa- it's, sorry, it's capitalism as, as neo-feudalism. Um, so, yeah, maybe that's the ultimate outcome of accelerationism. But are, what do you think, though, about, I think Mark Fisher, perhaps, is the, I mean, that's, Mark Fisher is more on the sort of left side of that than yeah, the well, land. Yeah. So I was just kind of curious. I think, you know, obviously everyone associates land with accelerationism, but there are, you know, there's so many different sub- subtypes. I think even there's anarcho-accelerationism and there's xeno and gender and unconditional. And There's something, I, I don't know what it is, but there's something I, I find a little bit scary about accelerationism, actually. I mean, it, it, it's, it's um, what is it? I mean, it's completely... It's, it's, it's totally destructive and, and nihilistic in a way, isn't it? Right? It's about it really is sort of taking Marx's thesis about how capitalism is, you know, in a sense, you know, li- liquefies everything, turns right. everything, into, uh, you know, it's constantly sort of re, you know, reconstitutes all existing sort of social relations. But I mean, what, what is that? Where's where's the natural environment in, in this? I mean, where are certain things which which should be conserved and preserved and protected? Right, I mean, doesn't accelerationism lead to the complete and utter, you know, sort of, sort of, in, you know, rapid industrialization or hyper-industrialization of, of, of everything? Surely, there's something about the existing world which which should be protected right. and maybe should be the basis of our radical politics. Not this, this whole idea that everything needs to be, you know, revolutionized constantly. I think it's actually a very modernist notion in some ways, isn't it? Isn't that yeah. kind of the ultimate victory of, of industrial modernity? I can right? definitely see that. Yeah. Final question for you would be, what 
has anything changed? I think so. I, I haven't read Political Theology, which is that. Am I correct? That is the most recent book. You it is. Yes. Yes. That's right. I haven't gotten around to that one yet. So I was kind of curious, uh, as, since you kind of, what, uh, post-anarchism was published in 2015, right? Or tw- uh, 2016, I think. 2016. Actually. So I, I feel like there's a distinction. <laughs> like, you know, I'm, cur- I'm curious what you would have written if you had waited perhaps another year and kind of where you kind of see things falling now that definitely there's been an inflection point <laughs> in terms of the motors of history turning again. Uh, yeah, well, certainly. I mean, so I was writing post-anarchism, I suppose, you know, around the time of, or perhaps just after, you know, the Occupy movements and movements of the you know, public squares in Greece, um, you know, the, the insurrections, you know, that had taken place in the Middle East and the Arab Spring. And, I, you know, I was, I thought, you know, this was, a, this was a kind of a kind of an anarchist or a post-anarchist moment. And I was quite sort of, you know, inspired yeah. to um, take that as my kind of, you know, sort of, um, you know, real-world starting point in a way. Um, I mean, I, I, I'm certainly still interested in, in anarchism and post-anarchism and in the political theology, which is kind of a new, you know, moving to a new area for me. I mean, there's still a lot about anarchism in that book. Um, uh, and, the, you know, in fact, the, the last chapter is really devoted to kind of ecological anarchism and, and even certain forms of kind of religious anarchism, which, which I, I find quite interesting, certain sort of way Christian anarchism. Um, so... Well, has the world changed? I, I suppose. I mean, if you look at what's going on at the moment, right? I mean, it's um, you know, with um, you know, with, with these protests and insurrections that are going on, not just in the United States but around the world. I mean, it's it's really very interesting, and it is it's it's an anarchist moment once again. I mean, the the the, the dream of anarchism or the the anarchist impulse, the anarchist insurrectionary. Um, Impulse never really dies, does it? And whenever there's an abuse of power, people will resist. And I'm so, you know, I'm, I'm still, I'm still kind of very much engaged with, you know, what anarchism might mean today as kind of an ethics and a politics right. and a way of being in the world. Absolutely. I mean, I, I am too. Mm-hmm. That's why we're here. So that's why we're here. Exactly. <laughs> what? Uh, just before we wrap things totally up, I'm. What are you working on at, at this moment, if you don't mind, if if you can share anything and kind of what you're where your horizons are right now? So, I mean, a number of projects, really. I'm, I'm, I want to do some more work on uh, Etienne de Boisy and the whole sort of, you know, voluntary servitude idea and, and how that, and how we, how we, you know, kind of experience voluntary servitude today um, uh, in all kinds of ways in sort of, you know, forms of, you know, digital surveillance and, uh, and so on. I mean, I'm, I'm writing more about political theology um, and the relationship between kind of religion and politics and theology and politics and whether there's any kind of radical um, uh, uh, implications for, you know, for sort of, you know, theolo- in, within theological thinking. So it's so a number of um, projects at the moment. Still waiting for the idea of the, the next sort of book idea, but uh, hasn't, hasn't quite come yet. Yeah. Do you have... A- I, think, I, think, I think it's probably fair to say that all of my thinking kind of in a way gravitates around some form of anarchism perhaps this is my this is my uh you know um touchstone this is my touchstone exactly that's right yes my, my sort of you know my sort of abstract ideal that I, I try to sort of follow and kind of you know reinvent and articulate in different ways absolutely that's uh i think that's a, a project we share is is there anything else that you'd like to say to maybe 
listeners or just in general to, to truly close out the episode? Well, I'd like to say to all your listeners in the United States, I mean, uh, keep up the struggle. Um, you know, it, it seems very obvious to me that, you know, that, that power is crumbling. In fact, power never really existed in the White House in the first place, actually. Um, so, uh, and I, I think, like I said, I think it's very, very interesting that, you know, that, Police power is really being, you know, subjected to, to such a, a kind of a sort of a radical critique. I mean, not not just within the United States, but, but you know, globally. So, um, so I just want to uh, salute the insurrectionists in the United States, um, and and just say how 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 impressed and how much admiration I have for you know for their courage, um, you know, for, for their for their, their for their tenacity, their persistence, um, and I think um, some very interesting things can actually come out of this. In fact, I was reading something today about how this is potentially the May '68 moment of the United right. States once again. Yeah. Exactly. Let's hope the let's hope the results are different this time. Yeah, well, exactly. Yes, indeed. But once again, uh, Saul Newman, tremendous pleasure to have you on the podcast. This was amazing. Thank you so much for taking the time out of your weekend to, to talk. This was amazing. <laughs> no problem at all. I very much enjoyed it. Absolutely. And, uh, I look forward to uh, seeing the podcast somewhere on your website. Sounds fantastic. I'll definitely get that out to you. Uh, but once again, this this is Machinic Unconscious Happy Hour with Cooper Cherry signing off for the week. <laughs> All right. All right. So Take enjoy it. your weekend. Thanks again. I will probably it'll probably be another week before I release the episode. Okay. I have kind of a backlog. But I'll definitely email you as soon as it's out. That'd be great. Thanks again. Sure. Tremendous pleasure. Yes. Thanks so much. Bye bye. Bye bye.